0: If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 119, Or you'll find the text printed in your bulletin. As you're turning there or looking in your bulletin, I want to challenge you with something as we begin the new year. I want to challenge you to bring your Bible to church. There's nothing that says you have to do that, um, but I do think it's a good practice for us. Uh, twofold. One, it's helps you pay attention better as your Bible is sitting right in front of you. I know there's apps on your phone, but you can get easily get distracted on your phone. I know we print it in the bulletin, uh, but if you have your Bible with you, it'll help you pay attention better. It will also help you be more likely to read your Bible throughout the week because uh, you'll know where it is, and you will have it in front of you. I preach from the English Standard Version. That's what Barry preached from. Whatever version you have, bring your Bible. Um, it will help you if we look at a a passage maybe in the sermon later that you can flip to, things like that. But I would, I would encourage you to bring your Bible uh, to church. It would be helpful for Sunday school and other things like that. Today we begin a series entitled, What Now? Moving Forward in a Time of Transition. And my goal with this series is to remind us of key truths that I think are vital for us as a church as we enter this season of transition, as well as to help us Remember that God calls us to move forward, to follow after him, that God is at work in the life of this church. Yes, we're in the middle of a change and transition, but God is not putting our church on pause until the next senior pastor is called. God is at work right now, and he has things he is doing in your life and in my life and through us as a church. So let us remember these truths as God calls us to follow him. Today we're looking at Psalm 119. It's a long Psalm 176 verses. Don't worry, I'm not reading all of them. We'd be here for a while. I was just looking at verses 97 through 105. But before I read this passage, let me pray and ask for the Lord's help and for his blessing. Gracious God, you have told us that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, would you open our eyes to see wondrous things in this, your holy word. Speak, Lord. For your servants, listen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here now the reading of God's word, Psalm 119, starting in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. As I know you are well aware, today marks the start of a new year, 2023. Wow, that's a little bit hard to believe, isn't it? And at the outset of a new year, it seems like so many of us, and maybe you fall into this, and that's fine, There's a desire for something new. Some folks want a new version of themselves, and so they start a new diet or a new workout plan, or they get a new haircut. Maybe the desire is for better sleep, and so you invest in a better mattress and go to bed earlier. Perhaps it's a desire for new material things, a new car, a new house, a new boat, new golf clubs. On and on we could go. Now, there's nothing wrong with something new in and of itself. New is not bad. The new covenant was better than the old covenant. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. New in and of itself is not bad. As long as we're not looking for something new to be the answer for our life and for our happiness. Getting something new or being something new outside of Christ will never bring you the happiness you desire. No, what you need and what I need Is something old, as old as time. What you need and I need is God and his word. As the hymn goes, tell me the old, old story of what? Of Jesus and his love. To find that story, we must return to God's word. And so as we begin a new year, let us find our delight in the same word, the word of God. Psalm 119 is all about scripture. This psalm is an acrostic poem, meaning there are stanzas of eight verses, and each one begins with the subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, starting with their version of A, going all the way through the end. And so, what we read is the mem or the M in Hebrew in the first verse of the nun or the N. And here in these verses of Psalm 119, we find three reminders regarding God's Word. First, we see our view of Scripture. Secondly, our need for Scripture. And third, our approach to Scripture. So, first, our view of Scripture. Now, when we think of our view of Scripture, it's easy to jump right into thinking theologically. We could talk about how God's Word is inerrant, it's without error in the original manuscripts. We could talk about how it is inspired by God, that's breathed out by him, that's infallible, It's impossible of making mistakes, and those are all true things, and certain passages of Scripture talk about those truths. But what we see in these verses of Psalm 119 is not so much theological as it is experiential. Now, to be sure, our experience of Scripture is grounded in theology, and it must be kept in check by what other passages believe what we see in the psalmist's view is his experiential view. Not just what he knows in his head, but what he experiences in his life and in his heart. So what can we learn from him? The psalmist begins by saying, oh, how I love your law. Now, perhaps you're thinking, love the law? I mean, I could see how you could love God's word, but the law, I mean, that's just command after command after command. Why in the world would you love something like that? Well, if that's you, you're not alone. A great Christian author, C.S. Lewis, really struggled with this for a long time. How could the psalmist love God's law? But as he grew, he learned what the psalmist really means here. The word law is the translation of the Hebrew word Torah, which simply means teaching or command. And it can be used to talk about the Ten Commandments very specifically. It can be used to talk about the all of the commands in the Old Testament more broadly. And it can even refer to all of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, which was Scripture at the time uh, when this was written, uh, or, or even in Jesus' day. And when we encounter this word Torah or law in the Bible, it's not always immediately clear what the referent is. And so we have to look at the context. And the context here shows us That what the psalmist is talking about is God's word as a whole, but with a specific emphasis on the commands of God. That is what he loves. Well, how can we grow to love God's law? We must realize that God's law has two primary purposes. First, it shows us our sin in a need of a savior. Without the law, God telling us what is right and wrong, we would not know how sinful we really are And therefore, we wouldn't see how desperately we need a Savior. Secondly, the law guides our life, shows us how to live as followers of Christ. The psalmist loves God's law, which raises an important question. Do you? Do you love God's word and the commands therein? Do I? How might you know? Well, do you enjoy reading your Bible? Do you make time in God's Word a priority each day? Do you strive to come to church week after week to hear God's Word read and preached? If so, then hopefully there's a love for God's Word. Now, you can do all those things and not love God's Word. But if you're not doing them, it's it's very hard to say that there's a love for God's Word. We also see here in this part of Psalm 119 that the psalmist views God's word as sweet. As I told the kids in verse 103, it says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Do you like sweet foods? I have to admit, I have a sweet tooth. I love sweets. I will eat pretty much anything sweet unless it has too much coconut in it. But have you ever thought you were getting something sweet? only to find out it wasn't what you thought. Like you pour a glass of tea and you're excited only to find out it's unsweet and you just almost spit it out of your mouth because this is South Carolina and we like our tea the Bojangles way with like syrup almost in it. Or you kids, you see some chocolate on the counter and get it real excited You take a bite only to find out it's unsweetened chocolate your mom's getting ready to use to bake with. Yuck, not what you expected. Friends, God's word is to be sweet to our taste, not bitter. Not that we literally consume the pages of the Bible, but figuratively we consume God's word and then it should be sweet. It should be something we enjoy, that we delight in as we read it and hear it preached. Is God's word sweet to you? If not, pray that the Lord would make it sweet and not bitter. Psalmist also talks about God's word as being more precious than riches. Verse 72, earlier than what we read, he says this, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Talk about a high value of Scripture. It's more valuable to him than riches untold. We live in a world that values money like nobody's business. I mean, we contrast that with this high view of Scripture, viewing it as more valuable than millions of dollars high view teenagers do you think of God's word as more valuable to you than the money you got for Christmas young professionals is scripture more worth more to you than the raise you're getting this year or the promotion you hope so that you can make more and maybe retire early what's your view of God's word does it match that of the psalmist If not, ask the Lord to grow your view of his word. It's a prayer that I promise he will love to answer. So that's our view of scripture, and it leads to the second truth we see here, and that's our need for scripture. The bulk of this stanza, Psalm 119, is about the impact God's word has on the life of the believer. The psalmist says in verse 98, "...your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies." For it is ever with me. In other words, God's word through the work of the Spirit of God brings wisdom. And the psalmist talks in verse ninety-nine about how he has more understanding than his teachers, and then in verse one hundred, how he has more under he understands more than the aged. He's not boasting about himself. No, he's saying, "Look, God and His Word teaches me. Therefore, I have more wisdom than those around me." Yet the very fact that these verses teach about wisdom reveals a key truth. In and of ourselves, we are needy. Now, we don't like to think of ourselves like this, do we? Do you like to stop and ask for directions? No, I'll find it. I'm not asking for help. Do you love pulling out the instruction manual before you start a project? No, I'll figure it out. I don't care if it takes me twice as long. I don't want to read that. Kids, do you love when your parents tell you what to do? No, you want to be independent. We all do. We think of ourselves as like we have it all together. But the Bible is very clear that we are needy people. Deep down, we all need God and his word. Friends, sin has had a deeper impact on us than we realize. Our rebellion against Almighty God has impacted all parts of us, including our mind, We're not as smart as we think we are. We're prone to misunderstand things. We're prone to be easily led astray. So we need God's word. Part of why we don't love the Bible and devote ourselves to its study is we have too low a view of Scripture and too high a view of ourselves. Do you realize how needy you are? Do you recognize that in and of yourself you do not have what you need to be a godly spouse? or a godly parent, or grandparent, or employee or employer, or friend or neighbor. It's humbling to admit, but if we don't admit it, then we'll never study God's word in order to learn and grow. Your view of scripture is directly connected to your understanding of your need. If you don't think you need it, you won't regularly study it or hear it preached. If it's true that we need God's word, and it is, then what kind of impact does it have? Well, the word of God, as these verses tell us, give wisdom. Wisdom is the practical application of the truth of Scripture into everyday life. Part of that wisdom is knowing our sin and our need for Jesus. The last verse in our text, verse 105, says your word is a lamp." to my feet, and the light to my path. How often do we struggle with what to do? What does God want from me? And how quick are we to look to other people to give us advice instead of going to God's word, to let that be the lamp to your feet and the light to your path? Pastor John Stott aptly says, We must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. In other words, sin in the devil makes us complacent. We can begin to think that we're just fine in this Christian life. Hey, we're better than so-and-so. or We're better than we used to be. But God's word challenges us. Are you regularly challenged as you open God's word to read it? I hope so. Are you challenged and maybe offended from time to time from what you hear from this pulpit? I hope so. That's a good thing because Scripture confronts us. It challenges us. We need our toes stepped on from time to time. Yes, there's comfort in God's word, but there's also challenge. Sometimes we need a loving rebuke from God's word. The story is told of an older evangelist who understood this principle, the importance of, of the Bible, and on the flyleaf of his Bible, he wrote this. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. How true are those words? God's Word shows us our sin, shows us how to avoid it, to live in wisdom. But if we're living in sin, the last thing we want to do is read our Bible. The wisdom found in God's Word also comforts and encourages us. Warren Wearsby says, The remedy for discouragement is the word of God. When you feed your heart and mind with its truth, you regain your perspective and find renewed strength. Now, I'm not undermining the severity of some forms of depression or anxiety, but so much of those have a spiritual component to them. The solution is not just have more faith, but part of it is resting in Jesus Allowing God's word to wash over us. To change how we think. How we feel and how we act. Remember God's word is powerful. This is no ordinary book. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and active. Sharper than a two-edged sword. Piercing the division of joint and marrow of soul and spirit. And discerning the intentions of the heart. This is a living book. Not that... More things are being added to it, but God, through His Spirit, speaks as His Word is read and preached. Why does God's Word have such an impact? Well, look at verse 102. Solomon says, I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. We need Scripture because in it, God Himself teaches us. That's the power of Scripture. John Calvin calls it the school of God. Kids, how many of you love school? I know we don't have that many kids here today, but my guess is some of you really don't love school that much. And that's okay. But uh, here we find a better school, not that you should drop out of your academic school, but the school of God, His Word, and His church. Parents, we don't give our kids the option to attend school on a regular basis, yet so often we make it optional for them to read God's word or to study it or to come to church. We'll hear things said sometimes, like, well, I don't want to, like, cause my kids to hate church or to hate God, so I'm not going to force them to come or I'm not going to force them to read their Bible. There's a couple problems with that. First, you and I aren't influential enough to corrupt our kids' minds like that. We can have a big influence, but you can't make them hate church or hate God. Secondly, by not coming or by not encouraging them to read the word, you're showing that it's really not that much of a priority to begin with. So why would we expect them to read it? Why would we expect them to come to church or to go to church when they're in college if it's not a priority for us? Friends, we need God's word. But even more than that, we need the God of the word. Jesus tells us in John five thirty nine that the scriptures bear witness to him. Jesus himself is the true wisdom of God. On the pages of scripture, we find the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All of scripture either points forward to Jesus, describes him, or looks back to him. And if you are reading through the Bible this year, I encourage you to look for Jesus on every page. His name may not be there he is there and you need Jesus I need Jesus so as we begin this new year I pray that you will commit afresh to devoting yourself to scripture write bible reading on your daily planner write church on your calendar don't make it optional if it's optional you'll fill your time with so many other things So we've seen our view of scripture, our need for scripture, and now finally our approach to scripture. How should we approach God's word this new year? What does the psalmist do in verse 97? He says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. His words here harken back to Psalm 1, describing the blessed man, it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Meditation is not what we kind of think of as clearing your mind and kind of maybe humming absently like an eastern religious practice. No, meditation in scripture is the same word for chewing on something. It's the same word that's used when a cow chews its cud. you ever thought about that process? A cow takes some grass, chews it up, swallows it, and then kind of brings it back up, chews it some more. That process goes up and down a bunch of times. It's gross, really. But yet, there's something helpful about that idea of really chewing on the Word of God. Looking at it from different angles, mulling it over in our mind, coming back to it throughout the day. Notice the psalmist says that he meditates on it all the day. This is not a five-minute Bible reading at the beginning of the day, although that's better than nothing. It's not just a verse of the day that pops up on your iPhone at whatever time you have it set for, and then starting your to-do list. No, this is something that goes on throughout the day. To meditate on God's Word, it begins with reading it. There's no Bible verse that says you have to read X number of verses per day. In fact, there's no verse that really says even to read the Bible every day, but to meditate on it all the day, you've got to read it to begin with. There's no other way to do it. So read God's Word. Make that a commitment this year. Shamelessly plugging again that Bible reading plan we've set for our church. We've made hard copies. They're on blue paper. We've emailed it out. We're even printing the week's readings in the bulletin and the months in the newsletter. You can download an app called the Reading Plan, and you can find that chronological plan there. I encourage you to participate, to read God's Word. Bart Ehrman is a professor of religion at UNC Chapel Hill. He's deconverted from Christianity, but he's a really smart man. And in his Religion 101 class, he normally starts each semester with a series of questions. He first asks the students, how many of you are Christians? Majority raise their hand. And then he says, so how many of you believe that the Bible is the word of God? Majority of the hands stay up. And then he says, how many of you have read the entire Bible? Most of the hands go down. And then he replies, so you mean to tell me that you believe that you're a Christian, that this is God's word, that he has given to you, yet you've not taken the time to read what he's given you? Lynn then proceeds to try to undermine Christianity and the validity of the Bible using a bunch of absurd points that really don't have validity. But he's got a point. If we're followers of Christ, then we should be people of this book. And I don't say that to try to guilt you, but if you've never read through the Bible, why not now? Maybe you've read it a hundred times. Do it again. J.C. Ryle and A.W. Tozer have both said, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. There's so much we can learn from every single page, even those genealogies, those parts of Leviticus that you might struggle with. There are things that you can learn. We also can meditate on God's word by sitting under the preaching of it. You've heard me say several times in this sermon, reading God's word and hearing it preached, and that's been intentional. We live in a society that emphasizes the individual rather than the corporate, but in God's economy, the corporate is more important than the individual. Yes, God saves individuals, but he saves them as a people, a group. God makes a covenant with his people. There's no me in Jesus in the Bible. In Acts 2.42, we see certain things that the early church was committed to. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They're elements of worship, the first of which is the apostles' teaching, that's the public proclamation of the word of God, what we know as Preaching. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convicting and converting sinners and building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. One of God's chosen instruments is the preaching of his word. And I say that with a level of trepidation as the one preaching God's word most Sundays going forward. But God's word, as it's faithfully preached, is authoritative, and we need it. You cannot grow as a follower of Christ if you're not regularly hearing God's word preached. Yes, read it on your own, but also come hear it preached. May God work in our hearts. Also, we can meditate on God's word by memorizing it. Verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. And Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. May we let God's word dwell in our hearts richly. May we do it for God's glory. Friends, remember that we have the word of God right here. God is so kind to give us his word. We're blessed to have it in our language, to have it in our home. That's not always been the case throughout church history. Remember, God's word gives life, and in it we find Jesus. Anthony Bruce tells the story of the British liberation of Palestine during World War I in his book, The Last Crusade. And during one particular battle, a combined force of British, Australians, and New Zealanders were pressing on the rear of the Turkish retreat over an arid desert. This attacking force outdistanced their water-carrying camel train. Their water bottles were empty, and so things got desperate. With no water in the desert, You're not going to last very long. Major V. Gilbert said, Our heads ached and our eyes became bloodshot and dim in the blinding glare. Our tongues began to swell. Our lips turned to purplish black and burst. The desperate force battled on to Sharia. There were wells there. And had they not been able to get to the place by nightfall, thousands of those soldiers were doomed to die of thirst. Gilbert goes on to say, We fought that day as men fight for their lives. We entered Sharia Station on the heels of the retreating Turks. The first objects that met our view were the great stone cisterns full of cold, clear drinking water. In the still night air, the sound of water running into the tanks could be distinctly heard, maddening in its nearness. Yet not a man murmured when orders were given for the battalions to fall in too deep facing the cisterns. And then he describes the priority, the wounded first, and then those on guard duty, then company by company. It took four hours till the last soldier had their drink. And all that time, they had been standing 20 feet from a low stone wall, on the other side of which were thousands of gallons of water. They were so close to the water, but didn't realize it. Friends, would that not be the case for you and me with God's word? Would we not be so close to it, just six feet over there on our shelf? Or even in our laps, but yet we don't really understand it. No, would we grasp what is there? Would we find a life on these pages? Would we find the good news of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior? Let us pray.